Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein, and on today's show, an interview with sound studies professor Jennifer Stover. What was exciting about podcasting was that it was, you know, when it first started, it was coming from everywhere. Whether it was elusive or not, there was a sense of democratization and excitement with, with podcasting that, you know, we all can't be on the radio, but we can all find a way through our cell phones and our computers to, to broadcast something. And I think there definitely has been uh, an impact on the sound since NPR became you know, the biggest kind of podcaster in the game. Jennifer Stover is editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out blog, which she co-founded in 2009. She's associate professor of English at Bimington University in New York State and author of The Sonic Color Line, Race and the Cultural Politics of Listening, out from New York University Press in 2016. Our interview with Jennifer Stover is conducted by myself, Paul Reese Mendel, and Jennifer Waits. I've been following the Sounding Out blog for quite a long time. And I think it's just a really interesting way to make some academic writing about sound studies accessible and draw attention to this really interesting field of academics that I think, you know, maybe a lot of our listeners aren't aware of sound studies. So I'd I'd love it if you could maybe tell us a little bit about Sounding Out and how it got started. Oh, absolutely. Sounding Out started as a way for sound study scholars to find each other. Um, It was a very, back in 2009, it was coming along, but still a really new field. And a lot of us were kind of isolated and the only person on our campus or the only person in our department doing this kind of research. And it gets very lonely doing that. And so I figured that this might be an excellent way to create a community online. Sound Studies hadn't yet had any conferences, hadn't yet, we didn't have any places to publish our work. And so I worked with two really excellent uh, then graduate students, now both um, are PhDs, Aaron Trammell, who is now in the computer science department doing humanities work, and then Liana Silva, who is teaching in the Houston Public School District. They were graduate students of mine, and we were just really geeking out on on sound. And we really thought that you know it was time to have have this kind of beacon to create community, and also to um, make sure that work by underrepresented professors gets published out there, and also folks that aren't in academia. We regularly publish pieces from DJs, from sound artists, from archivists from video game sound designers. And we really just wanted to have something where everyone who's interested in the cultural meaning of sound can find a place to talk, can find something new and interesting every week. And also, like we said, to make it accessible so that the field can show its relevance beyond just our, you know, kind of cloistered academic conversations. All all three of us are first-generation scholars and first-generation PhDs, so we kind of designed it as a blog that our, our family could read and, and know what we were studying and spending all that time holed up doing. How would you explain sound studies to your family or to people who might not have heard that term before? Sound studies, I think, is a real misnomer. I often refer to it as listening studies. That's really the course I teach at at the university is called How We Listen. And I think that that's really at the heart of what sound studies does is really thinks about 
historical ways that we listen. It thinks about the cultural ways that we, you know, we learn to think of some sounds as noises and some sounds as music. It talks about the political history of sound and the power behind sound. Who has the power to make loud noises without being stopped? Who, um, who is, you know, the image of silence and, and how silence ha- can come to mean both you know, an imposition of power of being silenced, but now we're seeing a wave of silence as a form of resistance. So we're really thinking about where the physiological meets the the cultural and and trying to to really give a more complex way of understanding listening besides just, you know, the study of the hardware, the physiological study of how our ears and skin and, and bones work to help us listen. So we're kind of at that at that intersection there. So is it true that that sound studies is somewhat of a reaction to media studies emphasizing the visual over the years, like film studies, and, and that we talk about culture in more of a visual way than we have, and, and we tend to neglect sort of um, interpretations based on sound? Am I getting that right, that that's part of what led to the creation of this field? Yes, I think that that was actually a, a realization across several fields. And that's one of the things that I think Sounding Out does really well is, you know, it traces kind of the roots of the field. And film scholars were one of the first to start thinking, you know, in the recent years to start thinking about how sound works, that, that the visual had really dominated film and continues to dominate film analysis. And so, you know, you had sound people like Walter Murch talking about his process. You had scholars thinking about, you know, the various uses of, of female screams. And, and then within history, you know, within history, we realized that archives have often, you know, saved material objects that, um, or recordings, and recordings are very important, but sound studies also evolved as a way to think about other ways that that we can think about sound in the archive and you know what do images actually tell us about the sounds of the moment what do um, you know various objects tell us about sound so it also grew out of a need to think about sound beyond solely digital or even analog recording like how do we how do we understand the way sound works in our everyday life beyond media and kind of actually setting media and music in a larger frame. That's how I like to think of it, is that it's not necessarily a reaction to the, the dominance of the visual, but actually a, a reframing of how of how sound works. That we had a very specialized language for how to talk about music, but not one that that actually put music in the larger soundscape that we, you know, that we hear it in when we're walking down the street or when we're at a concert or that that music is only, you know, one way in which we engage with sound, but our, our understanding of it had, had just been so kind of cut off and limited. So sound studies is the, the entity that grew out of all of these different fields, kind of, you know, awakening to, to sound. Literary studies, you know, we haven't talked about all the sonic images in literature. My book does a lot of that. And so, so sounding out is a way to bring all of us that are kind of housed in these various academic fields into conversation and learn to learn from each other. And what was that spark for you that got you interested in studying sound? Well, I've always been a 
a lifelong music listener and, and total music geek. That's that's where a lot of us a lot of us come from. But I didn't grow up in a home that was traditionally musical. I don't play an instrument um, or anything like that. But my my dad had a collection of about a thousand records that were my just favorite things growing up. And he taught me how to how to use them and handle them and clean them and play them. And I got my own turntable when I was five and started started collecting records. My first record was the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat um, in 1981, I think. I was, nice. yeah. And <laughs> so, so my dad just taking his listening so seriously that as he didn't just consume music, he didn't just... Um, kind of casually listen, but he really taught me to to respect that kind of, you know, personal listening that we all do. And I, and, you know, he even kept track of how many times he played certain records and when he played certain records. I have a whole archive that he left of his own personal listening practice. And that just got me to think that, you know, so many of us have this really profound musical knowledge that comes from listening, but we don't have a way to talk about it or unlock it. You know, we only have this specialized language of musicology that often depends on being able to read music and to think about music as a, as a musician would when so many of us, you know, listening is, is an art form that we, that we possess. How do we talk about listening? And I just realized how difficult it actually was before I went to grad school, I used to do band bios and I would, a band would send me their music. And this is, you know, back, back when other people did this for bands and they didn't have to do this for themselves. I would write a description of their music and their sound that they could then send out to record companies. And, and, uh, I used to get paid $25 a piece for these things. And so I got really good actually at describing sound and trying to describe it in a way that the band would feel it represented them. And so when I went into grad school looking at, at music and music criticism, I was actually surprised at how, at the time, you know, how, how little attention was being paid to a band's sound. We talked about their, how they dressed. We talked about actually how the records were pressed and made. We talked about the significance of their lyrics, but not really anything that took popular music as as a specialized form that, you know, that it's not just about the lyrics, it's about how the sound meets the lyrics. So I was taking a course on hip hop with Viet Nguyen at USC. And he basically said, Hey, if this is your complaint, this is your assignment, then you go write. He, he asked me to write a discography of hip hop in LA that takes sound into account. So that was my assignment for the end of the semester. And I started working really diligently on that. And at the same time as I was doing that, I'm from Southern California, so really thinking about how these LA artists use sound to represent the city and what is their engagement with sound and how they use sound to express being an, an Angelino. And so I was really deep into thinking about the city and I was reading Richard Wright's Native Son at the same time for an African-American novel class. And it was the simultaneity of doing those two projects together that just opens up this whole world of sound within that novel. And it was like I got tuned into a conversation in African-American literature that has been going on regarding sound, regarding you know the sonic understanding of the world and, and how we think and how we listen and how that area of our lives has been racialized in ways that are very apparent but we don't talk about them. And that's how the idea for the Sonic Color Line came along. 
Jennifer Stover, you are the editor-in-chief of the Stounding Out block. You're also an associate professor at uh, Binghamton University in English. Can you explore that a little bit more for us to help us kind of unpack how I think for a lot of folks, it, it's it's a it's a novel idea that 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 listening and sound would be bound up in race. Yes, we there's something about sound that we feel as if is kind of is is true and is transparent and it just happens and and I'm not sure exactly why that is except you know there's been some theories that. Um, you know, our eyes, we feel as if we have more agency over our eyes because we have eyelids that we can, we can shut and we can turn our head. And, but listening just seems in many ways to just happen to us um, because, you know, we're always listening. Even when we're asleep, we're always, the body's always tracking vibrations. But what I found in, in my research is that our listening can be very much, very much shaped um, culturally, shaped by, you know, the, our history, shaped by our education, shaped by the region in which we grow up, that so many things actually operate in a way um, psychologically like those eyelids and, and they come to seem as, as habits. And, you know, they come to seem as, as true and natural and they come to seem to us like the way everybody listens, right? We tend to kind of universalize our own individual listening experiences. And really, I think that's why the idea that race operates through sound and listening seems so strange. It's because listening feels like it's something we don't have control over, but we actually do exert quite a bit of filtering over over what we listen to and how we listen. And in fact, a lot of people argue that until our brain makes meaning of sound, we're in some ways just picking it up. We're picking up the vibrations. It's that moment when, and it sometimes happens very quickly, when we decide whether a sound is a noise, when we decide whether we're going to listen to a voice or not, when people decide that they hear a quote-unquote foreign accent when someone speaks English, that it means something about them. And that's what my work does, is tries to slow that process down, show how anyone who's grown up in the United States has come to have certain beliefs about what a quote-unquote American citizen should sound like and and that often has been very much entangled with a white masculine identity and sound. And also that there are ways of kind of white masculine ways of listening to the world that we are all encouraged to to adopt in order to um, have a place in this in this country. If we all can't, this is kind of coming out of the Cold War. If we all can't, we can't look alike, then then maybe we can listen alike. Maybe we can have a similar sensory orientation to the world that would make us American. So my book really looks at how African-American writers have noticed this, have called it out, and have resisted it through various kinds of strategies. Some of it having to do with with, uh, proliferating different vocal sounds, some of it doing with music, some of it challenging the idea that black spaces are naturally quote unquote noisy. Um, That's what I call the sonic color line is that kind of stereotyping that happens through sound. And it happens, you know, in these very subtle ways in our everyday lives. And often because we have such a practiced language to talk about visual stereotyping, 
that it evades us. You know, there's ways that sonic stereotyping can be used to racially profile in ways that we don't have legal recourse against. Um, loud music in particular um, is one that seems to very much invite stereotyping and invite um, a punishment and, and, and bring about real inequities in how people are treated. That calls to mind things like um, stores that would blast classical music to try to get rid of loiterers. You know, is that another sort of way that that sound can be used against people? Oh, absolutely. I was, I've, I've witnessed this myself in downtown Los Angeles. I was on my way home from seeing Isaac Hayes at the Hollywood Bowl, and I valiantly tried to take public transportation there. And I got left in downtown LA at two in the morning at a bus stop waiting to catch my next bus. And while I was there, there was nobody on the street. It was, it was before, you know, it was the first wave of, of gentrification in downtown Los Angeles. And I heard this classical music being blasted at, at a very, very loud, very, very loud uh, decibel level. And I didn't know, you know, where it was coming from. I was totally shocked. It was in one of the new, um, new lofts that were made out of some of the old factory spaces down there. And when I got home that night, I did some research online and found that it was becoming a common practice in California to divert homeless people from sleeping in the doorways of these new, really kind of locked fortresses of lofts that were being built in areas that formerly homeless people um, had, had lived in in downtown Los Angeles. And, you know, there's two things going on there. One, the idea that classical music can't be noise because it is, you know, even by the title, classical music, that it's always a sound of excellence and peacefulness. And, and you know, it's got a longstanding association with whiteness um, coming from Europe and, and uh, particularly the way in which America valorized a lot of the German composers. And so that, you know, is going on there. And then second, um, right, this way that power is being applied through sound and kind of drawing these borders through sound. On the Sounding Out blog, you added a podcast, which also explores some of these topics. And I mean, it makes sense that you would want to have, you know, a sonic exploration of what's being written about on the website. So can you talk a bit? It, it's an interesting format for the podcast because it's not necessarily the same type of podcast from week to week. So if you could give us a little bit of the story behind uh, the Sounding Out <laughs> podcast. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the cool things about when we started the blog was not just that we finally had a venue that we could publish Sound Studies scholarship in, but also that we could really exploit all of the amazing multimedia things about the internet. In fact, maybe one of the reasons why it's been so difficult and, you know, to write about sound is that we haven't had, you know, you can reproduce visual images in a in 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 print, but you can't really reproduce the kinds of sounds that we were exploring. So we really were excited about that. And a couple of years in, you know, we've been really experimenting with, you know, including recordings on the on the blog and, and trying different things out. And we just, it was about 2011, we all met and and just Aaron, Liana and I, the editorial collective, and we just thought that, you know, this is my, po I mean, podcasting was, was fairly, fairly new in 2011. And we just thought it looked like an excellent venue for people to do long, longer form pieces. And instead of just including snippets on the blog, and that maybe it'd be a way for 
some of our sound artists to do online installations. Maybe it's a way for folks to share their field recordings um, that they used in their book. Maybe it's a way for, um, we make a mixtape every year to, that's a, a collective piece put together by everyone who's written for us for the year. And, and it's maybe it's a way to interview folks and hear voices. And so we just put our energies behind making a podcast and seeing what might happen. They're different. We actually are bi-monthly now. Um, it's different every, every time we publish. And we also were really invested in helping people learn how to podcast. We actually, and this is uh, Aaron Tramell's domain on the blog, he developmentally edits podcasts and he helps people that are brand new at making podcasts because we wanted to also exploit the, the genre and what it opened up to get sounds from people in places that may not have access to a studio, that may not have access to high-end recording equipment, that may not yet you know, have, have trained in how to, how to narratively put together a podcast. So we've been you know, behind the scenes, we do a lot of, of that kind of work. Which is why our podcasts often, you know, sound really different because they're coming from often all over the world. One of the reasons that I was really interested in having you on the podcast was at the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference. Um, you were on a panel and you talked about how some people actually complain that sometimes your podcast doesn't sound that great, um, that the audio quality might not be what some people expect, but that you know, access and getting things out to people was more important and that um, you ended up sort of writing a manifesto explaining why people just have to deal with the sound quality. So I don't know if you <laughs> can just sort of describe the manifesto. I thought it had a great sort of punk rock ethos. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, all three of the the editors, um, we all come from a uh, DIY do-it-yourself punk rock background, which is kind of how the, in a way, why we started, you know, had the audacity to start the kind of blog we did because we came from this this background of like, well, it doesn't exist. You got to try to figure out how to make it, and you got to figure out how to make it on on nothing. I mean, that's the other thing I should mention is that sounding out is is completely unfunded. It's all done by volunteer labor. It's all done by a sharing of expertise that, you know, obviously contributes a bit to our to our sound, but but really no, I mean, we wanted this politically to have this this ethos of openness and and access. And we did receive we've received little bits and pieces of feedback, but we one, you know, got a whopping comment back in 2016 that was just kind of going in on our sound. And in fact, was saying, you know, I love the content of your podcast. I like being transported to all of these different places. And I like not, you know, not knowing what to expect. It's kind of like a free format radio station. But I just, can't, I'm an audiophile and I can't deal with the sound. And, you know, it kind of went in on the critique and, and we all got together in this meeting and we're just like, ah, oh, you know, how do we respond to this? You know, do we respond to this? And it was Aaron's Aaron's idea on our 50th podcast to come out with a manifesto of why we sound like. And we figured, you know, if that, you know, it's kind of a trick with sound. If you if you maybe know why something sounds the way it does, it may actually, you know, make you a more forgiving, a more forgiving listener. Um, we, you know, knowing we aren't intentionally trying to trying to annoy audiophiles with 
you know, occasionally inconsistent sound quality or so Aaron wrote a piece. Um, it's called the manifesto or sounding outs 51st podcast. And I can, I can actually read a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Stover, a uh, co-founder and editor in chief of the sounding out blog and the podcast, uh, do read from Aaron's uh, manifesto <laughs> and maybe perhaps it will answer my question as well. Um, what specifically like, you you just you just gave the suggestion that there's a reason why it doesn't sound great, but it's still extremely important to listen to. So I want to know, like, was there a piece of uh, sound art or or a piece of radio that you guys put on your podcast uh, that needed to be heard? Like, what was this piece? Oh, excellent. Okay, well, here's what here's what Aaron says. He said, I, I want to clear the air a little about what it is that we do. I've received feedback here and there over the years about how the sound of our podcast sounds different or, or inconsistent, that we need to normalize the sound a bit. Hello out there, audiophiles. Today, I want to say once and for all that our sound is intentional and that we are proud of it. Hiss, distortion, and all. We think that what some hear as, as imperfections, he's got quotes around that, are all part of what sets us apart from the ever-growing pack of podcasters. Sounding Out's podcast has sounded different since we MacGyvered our first episode from an epic talk, a few great ideas, and a rogue tape recorder at River Reed Books in Binghamton, New York in April 2011. And that was actually a convert, now end quote, and that was actually a conversation that I hosted with uh, a lawyer named Peter DeCola, who came through Binghamton to talk about his new book on sampling. And the, uh, it was co-written with Kemba McLeod. It's a, it's a great book about sampling and hip hop and kind of where the, how, how the crackdown on sampling legally has changed music. And, mm -hmm. and, and so we had a great conversation about it. And, you know, we, someone emailed me and said that they had recorded it. We didn't know it was all accidental. And so we had this great audio of this this really excellent conversation in the community and the person happened to be sitting in the middle of the room and captured it fairly well and so that's that's what that's what kicked it off it was um, a bootleg though <laughs> it was it was totally a bootleg i know yeah we, we we had no no ideas no releases it was like it was like a dead concert and and I, my question is on that particular tape i mean you said it was someone just sitting in the middle of the, uh, of the audience i mean was it was it substandard i'm i'm could do air quotes if people could see me. Was it, was it audio that, that maybe, you know, that you wouldn't release if you were, if it was a slate gab fest? Perhaps. Um, but I think it, it was a good enough job that, you know, that it, it definitely doesn't sound like it's a studio though. It sounds like people shuffling and coughing and, and there's definitely a liveness to it. Yeah. And you hear the space also. And I think that's one of the things that maybe some folks find disorienting, but we find, really interesting is that every recording also records a place and a space. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, that's one thing you lose when you have a, a podcast that's solely recorded in a, in a recording studio. Um, Tony Schwartz, one of my idols, my recording idols, um, said in the 40s and 50s that that recording studios were for silence they're for recording silence not for recording sound and so that's one of the things i think that we find that exciting and interesting some folks whose ears are getting i think increasingly trained to podcasts like radio lab have different expectations i think when we started there were no expectations for how podcasts were going to sound so i think that that's that's one thing that's that's really changed since 2011 
But but as here's what Aaron said about it. As I listen back to the past five years, I realize that our contribution to the fields of sound studies and podcasting has not just been in terms of who we broadcast and what we amplify, but the sounds of our podcasts themselves. Our podcasts don't sound perfect. They're spiritually aligned by the raw production ethic of bands like the Minutemen, who always privilege the emotive qualities of immediacy, access, and intimacy over the brooding qualities of studio production. Particularly because we founded the podcast upon these same principles, I've strived to prioritize radical visions and ideas to amplify new voices above all else. I want each podcast to arrive in your queue like a wrapped gift. Topic, content, production, and sound, all equally mysterious. Some of our podcasts were recorded on cell phones and others were recorded in high-end studios and recording booths. And we're, we're proud of these audible distortions. I think there's like even a parallel there, uh, Jennifer Stover, with, you know, the visual. I think you see with, with film, people get very focused on it. it, needs to look a particular way, it needs to have a particular aesthetic, it has to have a particular sort of polish to it. Is that something which which you're trying to sort of push the boundary then with sound to say, though, there is not a, not a single aesthetic here? Yes, and I think, I mean, I, I, I would definitely call that the NPR effect over uh-huh. over podcasting, um, the, the certain kind of modulation of voice, the certain kinds of pacing. Um, this American Life is probably the, the biggest influence, I think, over how podcasts have, have changed in mm-hmm. terms of their sound. And, you know, that's really what was exciting about podcasting was that it was coming from you know, when it first started, it was coming from everywhere. Um, whether it was el- elusive or not, there was a sense of democratization and excitement with with podcasting that, you know, we all can't be on the radio, but we can all find a way through our cell phones and our computers to, to broadcast something. And I think there definitely has been uh, an impact on the sound since NPR became, you know, the biggest kind of podcaster in the game. And I think people, but also, you know, people are, our, our technologies on our phone and our computers are getting better and more people have access to, to that. And I have started to kind of listen to listen differently um, based on the kind of work that they can do. But, you know, I also think that what is, is interesting about our podcast and, and the hearing of different voices, the hearing of voices that aren't all the same pitch or aren't, you know, traditional radio voices. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, we want to open up people's ears. We want to challenge the, the standards. And also we understand that editing is a language and we allow our podcasters to edit that who have that skill to edit themselves and to, you know, give us a finished piece of work. And I think there's something that's important for artists to have that kind of autonomy over what they do. And so you won't get a consistent editorial vision because quite literally we, you know, allow folks to, to, to edit and to use editing as a form of communication. That's the voice of Jennifer Stover, editor-in-chief at the Sounding Out blog. We'll be back with more. But first, Radio Survivor is supported by Spinatron. Spinatron's web-based music playlist system allows non-commercial radio stations to maintain the logs needed for reporting to music rights organizations, like SoundExchange and BMI. A station's playlist can also be published on its website. Learn more at Spinatron.com. That's S-P-I-N-I-T-R-O-N.com. One of the types of podcasts you run is also um, Soundwalks. And and I know yes. that you do 
I know you do work with sound walks outside of sounding out. Can you just explain what a sound walk is? It's used as a method of research, and it's used also as a method of locating yourself in time and space. It comes from Hildegard Westerkamp and her work at Simon Fraser University in the 70s for um, really getting a sense of your place, like I said, your place in, in a particular area and actually becoming aware of the meanings that you make through sound. It's a way to get in touch with, with how you listen. And a lot of the folks such as Murray Schaefer um, and Barry Truax coming out of, of Simon Fraser in that moment, were really, you know, arguing that, that we've, you know, we've lost our touch there in a field, you know, we've lost our touch for sound. We've stopped listening. We've tuned things out to the point where, um, you know, we're ignoring things that are vitally important and that vital importance and that we've diminished our lives because we no longer listen to the world around us. So their walks were in, in tune with acoustic ecology and the larger movements, ecological movements in the 70s. And the notion of the sound walk has endured and sound studies has really embraced it as, as a research method that, that we can use these logs of listening to track many things. Bernie Krauss uses sound walks to track and recording to track, uh, you know, global global climate change and the shifts in the sounds of of animals in particular spaces over time. I know folks that use it to to understand gentrification and the changes that gentrification um, has wrought in. Um, in the in various cities we uh, you can also use it for fun um, people uh, record and send us sound walks of you know a new place that they've never been to um, we've had some um, from iceland trips to iceland we've had sound walks that are about nightlife in japan we've had sound walks of kansas city and and how liana silva our editor used sound walks to become a part of a new place that she had just moved to and I'm currently working on a project called the Binghamton Historical Soundwalk Project that takes place in downtown Binghamton. And it's a project where students have amassed oral histories and amassed archival sounds and have amassed ambient recordings over the past five years. And we're currently in the process of turning those into art installations. We're building five sound art installations throughout downtown Binghamton. And we're going to lead walks where students and residents of the town can um, experience the sounds of Binghamton together, both the live sounds going on on First Friday and experiencing these um, these provocations, um, you know, these art pieces that challenge the, the history that we're given. And so there's a lot of ways, you know, that's really a piece where art meets activism meets um, the academy and meets archival work. So the sound sound walks are being used for a variety of purposes. And I think they make really they make really interesting listen listening um, for a podcast. You really get a sense and a flavor of, uh, of of another space and someone's opinion and feeling about that space through a, a sound walk podcast. And Jennifer Stover, I think it's just so interesting to share all of this because I'm not sure how many of our listeners have really thought about like the broader idea of sound studies. Thinking about sound walks, I, as I make my way around my own city, I notice more and more people plugged into personal electronic devices and, and, and it makes me sad that they're not hearing the sounds of the world around them. And so are there particular 
kind of concerns within sound studies. How, how do we interact with sound today? Yes, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. A lot of, um, I talk with my students often about their relationship to headphones and their relationship to um, the world around them and whether or not they think that they are losing out on something and why they use headphones. And I often ask them to go 24 hours without them and write about their experiences. And it's really, it's really interesting um, that, you know, there's a sense of, of agency, I think, that, that headphones and c- the feeling of being able to control the soundscape around you brings them. And at first, you know, a lot of them experience some real discomfort with being stripped of that. Um, some of them really come to like and realize that they've been missing out on and that listening is actually a very social sense that you are, you know, quite literally feeling the vibrations of people's voices around you. And, you know, that bus that almost hits you because you were on your, uh, you know, with your headphones in the, in the crosswalk. And they're really, you know, the sound walks actually have come to help them um, understand and desire more of that, you know, relationship between the world around them. I also found something really interesting. And this led to um, our one of our podcasts, the the episode 63, the sonic landscapes of unwelcome women of color, sonic harassment in public space by Locator Radio, uh, a podcast out of LA hosted by Mala Munoz and Dios FM. Uh, my students in class, many women of color who come from New York City, we're, we're upstate, we're about three hours from the city, so we get quite a few students from, from New York City. And they were talking about how important headphones were to prevent sexual harassment, that they are so catcalled constantly and have so much coming at them that, that headphones and loud music become a way to, to drown that out and a way to kind of take back public space. And that was really, you know, we malign headphones so much, um, but we don't stop to think, you know, the ways that they often can serve a, a protective function. And so that's, that podcast is all about uh, how, how catcalling creates, you know, sonic landscapes of unwelcome is what they call it and how women are really being kind of cheated out of the the freedom of just walking down the street and what that means. I started listening to that podcast and I was really struck by the idea of abusive noise and and I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about street harassment from kind of a sound perspective. I'd like to ask you uh Jennifer Stover a question here that yes. you know and and if you can give advice for someone who's hearing this and hasn't really examined their own listening habits. Cause it's something which I think we are just not trained to do. It's not something that, that comes naturally and mm. maybe starting to think, wow, I guess I haven't really examined how I take in sound or take in voices. Um, is there any simple way that, that someone who's sort of lit up now can begin to th- reanalyze or rethink how they take in, let's say voices, since that's kind of, where we're sitting, um, you know, is there, is there a practice? Is there something that someone can do or, or to begin to kind of, uh, become more open to the range of sounds or range of voices, or at least examine the assumptions that, that, that they're probably making unconsciously. Absolutely. Um, you know, we tend to associate women's voices, um, 
with, uh, you know, a lack of, of seriousness or a lack of intelligence or assertiveness. That's one thing I've come across in my, my own career. I'm from Southern California and I had a professor in a mock job interview tell me I sounded like a valley girl mm. and that if I wanted to be a professor that I needed to, um, you know, to change the way that I spoke. Otherwise, no one would take me, take me seriously. And that's very worrisome considering, right, that academics are supposed to be taking these kinds of things seriously and challenging and checking um, that kind of that kind of stereotyping. But actually, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head is just slow down and, and listen to the sound of voices and just, you know, when right when you meet someone, you know, kind of think, what qualities do they have in their voice? You know, what, you know, what, what, what associations am I making with a deep voice? Why am I, I find this bothersome or pleasurable? What assumptions am I making about this? I had my students do a provocation where they had to walk around and it wasn't quite eavesdropping, but they had to heighten their listening to other people's conversations and kind of see as they were walking and going about their day. And one of my students was talking about how much and how, how much he'd been encouraged to stereotype the, the Long Island accent and that how he had been and realized consistently that once a woman in particular opened her mouth and spoke with a Long Island accent, that he made an automatic assumption about almost, you know, so many aspects of their lives. And he and actually wasn't really listening to the content of what they were saying. And I guess just having an awareness that the sound of a voice communicates to us and that we often make these automatic assumptions and how can you consciously challenge the way that you're you're listening to those to everyone's voices um, and also recognizing that voices are shaped by our families and the people that we love and the regions that we're from and so when we're all you know some of us are told all the time that we need to change how we speak in order to have respect and to fit in you know think about the message that that sends about everyone we love and where we came from and that voices are are really you know, people have a very intimate relationship with them. And, and you know, in, it, that if we ignore the way that we react to the sound of a voice, we often, you know, don't realize that we're tuning someone out. And, and we place so much emphasis on words and the sound of a voice communicates so much. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer Stover, your editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out blog and then there's also the Sounding Out podcast, and you're an associate professor of English at Binghamton University in Binghamton, New York. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about sound studies and helping us to, to uh, expand our ears. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Links to everything we've talked about with Jennifer Stover are up on our website, radiosurvivor.com. This is episode number 175. Up next, I'm going to talk with Jennifer Waits about a radio station tour that she conducted at a very special college radio station. Jennifer, when I think about UC Davis's college radio station, KDVS, it's, to me, it's like, um, well, I had, I met a bunch of people here in Portland who were founding a low power FM radio station, and they were talking about the inspiration that comes from college radio, this college radio, that, and, you know, having worked on Radio Survivor with you for these many years, I happen to know that college radio is extremely diverse and no two stations are exactly alike. And saying college radio when you mean there's a whole it's a whole other set of ways to describe what they mean when they say it. And so I was like, well, what do you mean college radio? And what they meant 
was they meant UC Davis's college radio station, KDVS, because that's to them, the people that were founding this radio station in Portland, KDVS was like the highest possible example of college radio. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's funny when I, I wrote up my piece about my visit to KDVS, I, the introduction to my piece is basically when you imagine sort of a stereotypical college radio station in your mind, or at least when I do, the type of station I imagine it looks a lot like KDVS and mm-hmm. sounds a lot like KDVS. Well, it, well, why do you think that is? Well, it, it really aligns with the type of college radio station that I've been involved with. It has a freeform music aesthetic and, and really a strong emphasis on underground music. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a massive record library with tens of thousands of items. And it has a mix of, of students as well as community members. So ranging from high school students all the way through to people who are of retirement age. Right. And, and in I- fact, there's some there's somebody there who's been there since 1972, which is kind of unbelievable. And that I like that so much about this particular college radio station as 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 it blends into the idea of what we think of when we think of community radio stations that it has uh, lots and lots of student energy there on the campus of UC Davis and it's run by students and in fact, you know, you spoke with general manager Jacob Engel who is a student and also <laughs> runs this radio station right now and Jacob was saying like that there's so much that Jacob gets from these other these these uh, uh, dare I say elders of community radio who are also participants in the station. I just I'm really excited about the fact that um, the door is not closed to community members, but also it's it sounds like KDVS is a very um, student oriented station. People who graduate Davis, um, who stay in the area, you know, they want to stay connected to the uh, their alma mater somehow. And this was, you know, really uh, a club, a good social organization. And uh, like, I'm not going to try to say community too much, but you know, that's how yeah. they like stay involved. And so it's been cool. And then that also really keeps the institutional uh, history and knowledge yeah. going. And so, you know, I've benefited immensely uh, by having some of those uh, veteran community members be a part of the station. You know, sometimes when you have a station where where student turnover is constant, right. uh, you can there are things that can become you you don't have a sense of history, and sometimes that leads to some structural challenges. Um, and so they always have this kind of thread of of people who have been involved forever or people who are sort of on tap for advice, um, including folks like, Todd Urich, who is one of the folks who founded Common Frequency, a, a community radio advocacy organization, and, and an engineering genius, I might add. And and so I know that he, over the years, has stayed in touch with KDVS long after the time that he graduated, you know, providing support, you know, engineering advice in particular. Uh, and, you know, having these sage kind of elders, I think, is one of the amazing yeah. aspects of KDVS. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you have taught me today that KDVS there at UC Davis has been on the air on the FM dial since 1968. So now that's uh, over 50 years and it's 60% students. And so it's it's like such a um such a strong college radio station like and that's becoming more rare 
there are a lot of stations like this and you know that that's what i i work to do is to you know uh bring these to light um you know part of part of what is rare is that it's one of these rare stations that has live hosts 24 hours a day seven days a week Ah. so there's no automation at kdbs no automated programming and and that's something that's it's increasingly you know, it, it's more the norm that a college radio station has the ability to run on automation. Right, so, which might be good for the sleep hygiene of certain students or community members, but so it it limits the amount of um, free-form experimentation and, uh, you know, on-the-job training, as they say. There's so much that can happen overnight on, on a community oh, yeah. radio station. So many opportunities overnight, and... Uh, and it's a pretty special experience at a lot of stations. So I think, you know, that's another thing that sets KDVS apart is that they're, you know, they don't have automation. Um, they also do live music events. And, and that's something that a lot of stations do. But it, it's just another kind of sign of the focus that they have on music. We have shows that are, yeah, just dedicated to one genre. And like the DJ may play uh, one decade uh, for that for a show, or they might do uh, left-handed flautists for their show if they do like classical music. They're also um, one of my friends. She decided to choose a different um, both era and country to pick her music from for each show. Um, and so sometimes you're listening to reggaeton, like hip hop fusion. Sometimes, like my show with her was like romantic French music. And mm. so, you know, it was, uh, so yeah, everyone has their own thing. And then I was just doing a lot of, um, because I'm from the area, I played a lot of local, like rock. Um, and then I was playing a lot of hip hop too. You know, every right. college radio station is different. Some stations have a focus on, have more of a split between news and public affairs mm-hmm. and music. Uh, but I think of KDVS as having like a very strong point of view about music. Yeah, which I love. I just, again, like the idea that like somebody who is either awake at night because of their job or if they're awake at night because they have uh, become awake. And if they turn on the radio to know that the the music that they're hearing is not just another another stream of media, but in fact is another person in their somewhere in their town. I guess you could be listening to KDVS over the internet as well, but if you turn on your radio in Davis and that the person who's playing music for you is also awake. You guys are you're awake together, which is what makes radio special. Well, yeah, and you know, I've met a lot of college radio DJs over the years who talk about the people who do call in in the middle of the night and right. and so this idea that you can call up a radio station and reach a live person is pretty special and you know often there's just great lore about the types of people that might call in the middle of the night <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. right and, it's, and you would think oh it could be creepy but no it's actually it is another form of community the night the night owls and the other thing about kdvs that seems so special again in the year 2019 is how much physical music they have available for their djs to sort through and to spin um there's so much there's so much uh ephemeral streaming content that that the idea of there being physical records and uh, cds and tapes is pretty it it does it it must have an impact on the way radio is made there in davis 
Yeah, I would think so. And and it's apparent as you're walking around the station, you know, you see walls and walls full of CDs and vinyl records and, you know, this incredible history of music and also, you know, plenty of new music that is being added to the station that has a physical form. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that, you know, for people who are adventurous, that can lead to a lot of interesting discoveries and wandering about through the stacks and and I think it does give a station a particular on-air sound if if there are DJs who are walking through the library and pulling things. Right. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if you know, young people who are coming to the station for the first time, it sort of gives them that grounding in in the culture of the place. That you know, yes, you can bring your own musical tastes to the airwaves, but here is also a pile of of discs of all of all eras that you can select from. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if this has happened at UC Davis's station, but uh, I remember visiting the station at Princeton, WPRB, and they actually had instituted this all vinyl, I don't know if it was a week or longer than a v- right. week, uh, but they had a whole period of time where people had to play vinyl, and it was a challenge for a lot of new DJs, but people at the station felt like it was this great way to introduce people to the vast record library that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the benefits of digging, digging deep yeah. down. Uh, I'm jealous of the people that had that opportunity to dig into those into those stacks of, of records there at UC Davis or at Princeton. Um, Jennifer Waits, you tour college radio stations and and other community radio stations. And what what did anything stand out to you there at Davis? Did anything make... KDVS special as a place to tour? Oh, I mean, there are a lot of things. Um, you know, I think their history is really interesting. Um, I mean, for me, it was looking, they haven't moved in a long time and they may move mm. pretty soon. But looking at the walls of the station for me was like this incredible nostalgia trip because you could look at one wall and there would be a whole bunch of posters and stickers from the 90s. So I felt like I was traveling back into my own college radio past. Mm, dangerous nostalgia. And, yeah, and just like taking in um, kind of these glimpses, you know, lots of posters for shows from over the years. So the walls were kind of an incredible history. And, and I hope that if they do move, they're able to figure out a way to preserve that material because – you know, as as you know, and people who read my tours know from all the photographs, I I love the kind of all the stuff that's in yeah. a radio station, and especially stations that have been around for a long time. And you know, it's like this anthropological right. project, looking or- around and kind of taking in the culture and and what you learn from just reading the walls. Yeah, it's a lot like a like an art installation created by every single member of the radio community that uh, that you can go explore except it's it's a real place. It's a very it's a very unique kind of space these college radio stations because um everyone gets a literal and more uh figurative like everyone has a hand in in building what the place becomes and so you could see that on the walls as well as listen to it on the airwaves jennifer i know that you are um you're you're an amateur college radio historian so i know the history of a place like kdvs um 
matters more to you than than the average radio lover? Was there something that stood out in this 50-year history that you could share with Radio Survivor? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting to hear. You know, one of the first times I visited KDVS was actually around the time of this horrible pepper spray incident where students were pepper sprayed when they were protesting. It was during um, a lot of the Occupy protests. And and the station aired a lot of programming around that time about Occupy. And in fact, Jacob Engel was telling me that um, he turned to KDVS when he was a teenager because he wanted to learn more about what was happening with Occupy. So, oh, so young. It was a, yeah, so it was a source for that information. It's so hard um, for someone like me to remember that Jacob Engel, an adult college student, would have been 13 years old when the Occupy movement first uh first launched there in New York City and then spread to campuses like UC Davis. Uh, yeah, know. that would have been like 2012. So that's seven yeah, years ago. Tr- yeah, so that's um, that's part of the station's history, even though it seems more recent history to it's us. recent history, yeah. Um, but it, it has linkages to a lot of other interesting stories about how the station has been involved in activism over the years. And, and apparently... In the very early days, when before the station was on FM, it was a carrier current campus only station mm-hmm. starting in 1964 um, at 8:80 a.m. out of a dorm, and it was in an all male dorm, but women were always involved with the station. So Jacob Engel told me that it was always a part of the ethos at KDVS to speak up for gender equality and the importance of having women involved at the station. And and that early station in the male dorm led to the first women's bathroom and the first co-ed bathroom in a male dorm on campus because they wanted to make sure to have access for the women who were volunteering at the radio station. Huh. So that was a tidbit that I thought was interesting as well. Yeah, that, that sort of um, pulls in a lot of different threads. Yeah. about the history of, of radio. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for bringing me and the Radio Survivor listeners a little taste of your tour of radio station KDVS at UC Davis, one of the one of the flagship radio stations of what college radio means to a lot of uh, generations of listeners. Yeah, happy to share the tour. Well, as you can hear, apropos of our earlier conversation with Jennifer Stover and sound studies, the sound of jackhammers outside of Jennifer Waits's window, because Jennifer Waits is conducting that uh, conversation today, not in a radio studio designed to record silence, but in their home, which is in the middle of uh, a world-class city in the United States. So jackhammers on the streets on today's episode of Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Paul Reese-Mandel, thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast in the podcast catcher of your choice, Radio Survivor. And you can also check us out on the internet, radiosurvivor.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.